Well, good morning and happy Sabbath, everyone. It's good to see you all. Um, as you know, we've been covering uh, a series entitled Pioneers of Faith, and we've been covering different historical figures, whether it's in Christianity or whether it's in Adventism. And uh, I think two weeks ago, Jinha shared about the story of Catherine von Bora, uh, who was the famous nun who married uh, Martin Luther. Last week, Jinha shared the story of John and Julia Corliss, uh, the Seventh-day Adventist missionaries that helped start the church here in Australia. Well, today we're going to be talking about the story of Bubsy and Neville Westwood. Bubsy and Neville Westwood. And I'm just kind of curious, how many of you are familiar with this story here in this room? Oh, cool. I'm so glad I get to share this story with you for the first time. Okay, so uh, before I begin, I want to plug this children's book series entitled The Angel Said Australia. And let's see if I can... There we go. So uh, the Australia Union Conference, or the AUC, uh, have published these six books written by uh, Amanda Buse, and they cover the different stories of um, Adventist pioneers, and these are just incredible stories of people who helped establish the church here in Australia. And I I think these books are just a great way of sharing um, the faithfulness of just Adventist pioneers with the next generation. Uh, I remember growing up, my dad used to buy these religious books and just leave them around the Uh, leave them around the house in hopes that we would kind of walk by, be curious, and pick them up. And so there would be, like, desire of ages and great controversy and steps of Christ just all over the place. And for years, I ignored these books (laughs) because, number one, they're way too thick, not enough pictures, and I was just like, no, don't care. And I hit the age of 18, saw the book Steps of Christ, and kind of thought, oh, well, I'm actually curious. I wonder what this is about. I read the book from cover to cover. It was also it was also the skinniest book out of the whole series. And uh, after I finished reading the book, I read it again, and that was kind of the beginning of my journey with Christ as an adult or as an eighteen year old adult. Um, so I, I highly encourage a- anyone who's who's starting to raise a family. These books are really great for sharing um, just like incredible stories of Adventist pioneers here, specifically in Australia. Okay, so today we're going to be looking at the story of Neville and uh, Neville Westwood, Neville Westwood and his car Bubsy. So we're going to pick up the story in 1921. So 1921, Neville Reed Westwood attended a mission ran by a pastor Harold Cecil Harker, and he got baptized as a Seventh Day Adventist. He then enrolled. Um, he, he then enrolled at the Darlin Range School, which is now uh, Carmel Adventist College, and he studied there for two years, especially enjoying his subjects in the Bible. In 1924, at the Western Australian Camp Meeting, uh, which is the equivalent of a big camp these days, the conference leadership called for, called for people to be missionaries to the state's Northwest Corridor and Darwin. So Neville applied, and he was given a missionary license, and he was asked to sell Christian literature and give Bible studies to people living in small towns throughout the Northwest Corridor uh, of of, uh, WA and also all the way to, to Darwin. So this is what Neville did. Between May and September, Neville sold 328 books and traveled a total of 20,000 kilometers So that's 20,000 kilometers in five months in the 1920s. Now, you think about transportation back then. Neville had a second-hand motorbike, and he also traveled by horse, camel, and push bike. 
Now, here's this guy traveling through the desert on his motorcycle, and one day his motorcycle breaks down. And they didn't have RACV back then. And so what does he do? He hops off the bike, and he hikes 100 kilometers to the nearest town. So in 1925, Neville and his brother Greg decide to go on a trip from Perth to Darwin, and they purchased a second-hand, they purchased a second-hand uh, Citron 5Z, uh, 5CV, which Neville named Bubsy. Now the original plan was to travel from Bickley to Darwin, and so they departed from Perth on August 4. Now on September. On September 3, they arrived at Fitzroy Crossing, and they couldn't get across the crossing, and their tires sank in the soft sand. Now, I don't know if you guys, if you guys go out to the front of 500 Collins Street, you'll see this big white Ford ute that belongs to the Bylands. They're actually from WA, this kind of uh, oddly enough. And if you look at the tires and the lift kit on this thing, this car can cross anything. Bubsy is not that. It's like bicycle tires. <laughs> and so they were trying to drive across the, so- uh, the soft sand, and they got stuck. And a group of Aboriginal locals had to help pull the car out of the sand by tying a rope around the front axle and kind of just getting them across the, uh, across the dry riverbed. Now, Bubsy's tires weren't meant for rough terrain, and Neville and his brother Greg regularly had to patch the holes in the inner tubes. In the middle of the trip, they ran out of patches, and for 50 kilometers, Neville and Greg drove on a flat tire filled with grass and leaves. Now, 10 kilometers away from Wave Hill, a second tire punctured, and they were forced to walk the rest of the way. When they arrived, the station manager didn't have any patches, so they filled their tires with cowhide, and they drove another 100 kilometers to Pigeon Hole. So in October 8th, they arrived to Emolgan, which is just south of Darwin. <coughs> By then, rains had started, and the car needed new tires and other supplies. So the brothers had to leave the car in town, and they took a train to Darwin. It took the brothers two months to travel from Perth to Darwin. Now, all throughout their journey, they sold book subscriptions, they collected money for missions, and they gave Bible studies. When they arrived in Darwin, they spent 10 days selling uh, book subscriptions and collecting money. They were looked after by the town mayor and other town authorities while they were there, and during their 10-day stay, the mayor's wife decided to join the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Her name was Mrs. Ethel Porter. So after 10 days, uh, after the 10 days were finished, um, the brothers decided to keep going. Now, the original trip was go to Darwin, come back home to Perth. They got to Darwin and said, hey, should we go further? And they decided, let's do this. Now, picture this. Imagine after the grueling trip in the car, no AC, no heater, no Apple CarPlay or Android Auto, no weatherproofing in the vehicle, no GPS, no Melway for that matter. Who goes through a journey like this and thinks, Let's see how far we can go. <laughs> so these guys, and, and if you think about the story, these guys are so lucky. Let's see if this works. These guys are so lucky that there was a train line that started here in Mulgan and went to Darwin. Now, can you imagine if they got stuck anywhere else in the Northern Territory? Like, they would have been stuffed. Well, 
On October 18, the pair left Demolgan with a supply of secondhand motorcycle inner tubes for Bubsy, and they headed for Dally Waters. Now, excuse me if I'm slaughtering these names, which I probably am. <laughs> yeah, there'd be like, yes, you are slaughtering them. <laughs> okay, so they headed for <laughs> Dally Waters, but then they got lost. Now, picture this. No... No Melway, no GPS, and they're kind of like stuck in the middle of Aust- northern Australia. The, anyway, they're stuck here somewhere. <laughs> now, they came across the burned-out car of Francis Brittle, who was a surveyor who was plotting out a course for a new railway line. They had read about his car crash in the news, and they gathered their bearing and reached uh, – they, they read about the car crash in the news. They gathered their bearing, and they reached their destination. So from there, they traveled to Barclay Tablelands, where travel became easier. And from October 29, they arrived in Winton. From there, they headed to Brisbane. And (coughs) uh, once they arrived in Brisbane in November 6th, the news started to travel that there was a pair of brothers who were crossing all of Australia in a motor vehicle. So while they were there in Brisbane, a reporter came, interviewed them, purchased some pictures from their brothers, and published their story in the newspaper. On November 17, the brothers arrived in Sydney. They drove down to Melbourne afterwards, and they arrived in Adelaide December 14. So by Christmas, Bubsy had arrived to, uh, forgive me, uh, Wijimultha. And from there on, the brothers were escorted to Perth uh, by a group of excited mortarists arriving the 30th of December. So Neville Westwood is credited as the first Australian to circumnavigate the country of Australia by car. Greg, his brother, accompanied him for much of the trip but ended up taking the train for different legs as I guess he just got tired of sitting in the car <laughs> he was like forget it you're on your own and so the story goes uh greg kind of hopped off around here in albury took a train and met him here in wijimultha <laughs> so he was like peace out you do the second half by yourself so today bubsy the citron 5cv is now owned by the national museum of australia in canberra and is often on loan to other museums around the country So today, I share the story of Neville as an example of someone who effectively put their gifts and their passions into action. And as a result, Neville made history. You know, there are so many competent, talented people in our church. It makes me wonder what happens if we as a community put our passions and our gifts together and make a commitment. God, what do you want me to do with my life? So today... I want to challenge you to explore your passions, explore your strengths, explore your gifts. I want to challenge you to pray and ask God, is there something that you want me to do with this life that you've given me? I believe there are moments when God calls his people to specific purposes that impact eternity. And by asking God that question, you give God the opportunity to lead, guide, and direct you. And in the growing awareness of his leading, you personally mature in the likeness of Christ, effectively and meaningfully ministering out of your personal experience. 
So I'm sure you're asking the question, okay, Roy, that sounds great, but how do I find God's leading and his purpose? The first thing, or the only thing that I'm really going to talk about today, is recognize that when you respond to the gospel, that God sets you aside for his special purpose. There's a passage here in 1 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. It's actually 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Forgive the typo. It says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, there are two metaphors that are mentioned here in this passage. The first metaphor is the metaphor of the priests. Now, in the Old Testament, the priest was an agent whereby the people would come to know God. The people around the priest would come to know God. The second metaphor that's used is the living stone. Now, the living stone is referring to the house of God or the temple, which is the location of God's very presence. See, the temple is where people would go to see God. You, as a living stone, make up a part of that picture. And without you, that picture is incomplete. Bobby Clinton extensively writes on the topic of beingness. And the way that he defines beingness is describing the inner life of a person. It refers to intimacy with God, character, personality, giftedness, destiny, and values drawn from experience. So Bobby's Clinton whole Bobby Bobby's Bobby Clinton's whole life was dedicated towards getting people to explore their purpose, their ministry and their calling, and his life mission was for people to be able to um, experience beingness and for their purpose, ministry and calling to naturally flow out of that place of beingness. So how do you draw out or discover your walk with God? How do you draw out or discover your character, your personality, your giftedness, a sense of God's leading and the values that shape you? Clinton states that utilizing a timeline tool helps develop an awareness of your being. The timeline, it's a history of your life. It tracks the major and minor changes that have taken place in your life. It highlights the circumstances that trigger those changes. It highlights the lessons that you've learned through those circumstances. And so the idea of this timeline is recognizing God's hand in your life. And whenever crisis or conflict happens in your life, rather than than asking the question, why God is this happening? He's saying this tool is to help. Uh, reframe that question from why to what. God, what are you doing in my life? What do you want in my life? It tracks the work and the skill set that come as a result of your time spent in work or whatever professional career that you, you have. And so by processing all these events, you'll see patterns of activity in your life. You'll see events that shaped you, unexpected turns that took place in your life, And most importantly, you'll see God leading you in the specific direction. Over the past week, I've been working through my timeline. This is what you're looking at. Um, On the bottom part of this timeline, there are these different processing items or different things that have kind of shaped and influenced this timeline. This is the bottom half of what that looks like. And I'll I'll share in detail as I uh, go through my timeline with you 
So I was born and raised in an Adventist family. Um, born in 1983, and uh, basically grew up in the church. My family had regular family worship. I was a part of a youth group. I've known the same people since I was in second grade. And so whenever I go back to my hometown church, that is like where I came from. Uh, Grew up in Adventist education. And uh, when I was 15, my mother passed away. And that really shifted and shaped my life as a teenager. If you look at the second part of the part one, part B of part one of the timeline, um, that's when I really started turning to God. Kind of had this sense of loss in my life. Uh, My mother wasn't there through formative years, and it really made me search and seek for something more. And so during that time, uh, that's when I picked up Steps to Christ, read through the book, and really started exploring spirituality for myself. And that was a really formative time because there was an obedience check that took place. My friends were kind of sowing their wild oats, and I participated for a little bit and then realized, hey, I don't think this is really what I want. And so at the age of 18, my friends are partying and going off and doing crazy things, and they're saying, hey, Roy, do you want to come join? But that was the first time when I was exploring my relationship with God. And so I told them um, I'm actually going to hold off. And so for two or three years during that time where mates really stick together, I completely soloed it, and I was kind of like the awkward guy that was reading his Bible on a Saturday night from 8 p.m. until 9.30 p.m., and that was just that time stunk because <laughs> it was like all my friends were like, why is Roy being this, like, why are you being so holier than thou? And going through that really shaped the next steps that I took. So from 18, um, I tried to take my spiritual life seriously, got involved in church, and uh, entered into a crisis. I was graduating high school, but I didn't know what I wanted to study. All like growing up in a Korean American church, Asians either go into the healthcare field or they become lawyers. <laughs> and eighty, what percentage? I, I start out by saying eighty. I want to say sixty percent of the people that I know became doctors. Right, like not not even like physiotherapy, nurse, dentist, like doctors. They went to Pacific Union College, went to Loma Linda, became doctors, and now they all live in the West Coast as as, as medical professionals. And so that was kind of it. Felt like that was my destiny, but the reality was high school was very different for me. I, studying was not a priority, and so there was a crisis of like all of my friends are going off to university, but I'm not ready to make that commitment yet. So then enters into my life a guy named John Park, who was a youth pastor. He spent a lot of time with me, and at the age of 19, when it was my turn to transfer to university, he said, you should go to Mission College of Evangelism. It's going to ground you in the Word, and you'll, you'll, you'll grow spiritually. You should check that out. And so I responded to that, that invitation. I went to Mission College of Evangelism, and not knowing that this was a super conservative school, and I didn't even know what the word evangelism meant. I just thought Bible school. But evangelism is like, you're going to knock on doors, you're going to get to know people, and you're going to ask them, do you want to study the Bible? And How can I teach something that I don't even know myself, right? So for three and a half months, I'm in this school where... Uh, the, the, the girls dress like they're from the 1800s. Uh, we eat two meals a day. It's a straight vegan diet. And so I went from being like a full-on meat eater to being like a vegan in overnight. And that, that messed my system up. <laughs> I was just like, I don't know what's going on here. And through that time, 
something happened. I actually valued my faith. I valued Adventism. I started sharing about the Sabbath and different truths of Scripture and recognizing, hey, I actually don't know my Bible very well, but I'm meeting with people from different denominations who have studied Scripture, and I can actually hold my own. And that built a sense of identity, and I started valuing Adventism. Moving on. So from 2003, at the end of my time at Mission College of Evangelism, we ran a tent meeting. We literally pitched this giant tent in the middle of a fairground, and there were uh, probably like 100 people that had come out from the community to these meetings, and lo and behold, three people that we had studied the Bible with ended up getting baptized. And so there I was, a 19-year-old, thinking, this is crazy. I don't even know what I'm doing, but three people have come to the church as a result of this. And so I sort of got bit by the bug. And at the end of my time at Mission College of Evangelism, there was this invitation for those of you who want to try Bible working. Um, we're putting together teams of Bible workers and sending them around the U.S. Put your hand up if you want to join. So I put my hand up and said, hey, I'm interested in exploring this. Um, what, what's available? Uh, it ended up that me and two other friends got sent to Manhattan, New York. And for three and a half months, we lived in New York, drove down from upstate New York all the way to the city, and we knocked on doors in the government projects uh, for three and a half months and ran another series of meetings. Now, that time was very formative for me because as an Asian American, my dad wanted me to go to university. So then his, his question was, hey, you're 19 you don't have direction in your life, are you going to go to university and study? And my answer was, well, I don't really know what I want to do with my life yet, but I feel like this mission thing is kind of like I really enjoy it. Can you give me four more months? And so he said, okay, you can have four months, go to New York, do your thing, and then go to uni. Well, I finished my time at New York, and I ca called my dad again and I said, hey, there's a group of people going to Oregon can I go to Oregon for six months? They're going to do another evangelistic meeting. And my dad was like, Roy, when are you going to go to university? And I told him, well, I don't know if I'm ever going to go to university. And that was like the rebellious side of me, just kind of like trying to, you know, put my dad on edge. I was like, you know, Jesus never went to university. Peter never went to university. <laughs> like I started listing these Bible characters. I was like, hey, you raised me in the church. I'm going to use this trump card against you. <laughs> <laughs> and so my dad, like, he was so stressed out. Poor guy. I think he had, like, way more white hairs after that time of my life. Well, that nine-month period extended out to four and a half years. And for four and a half years, it was every every year calling my dad, hey, uh, there's a group of us going to Guam. Hey, there's a group of us going to Melbourne. Hey, there's a group of us going to wherever. And he just got to the point where he was just, like, pleading with me, please go to university. <laughs> well... That time gave me an opportunity to be exposed to different kinds of ministry, to different churches, to different cultures. And over that four and a half years, um, it, was, it was kind of my time in uh, navigating through my adolescence. And it was exploring my own faith, trying to understand who I was, gaining ministry experience, making lots of mistakes, uh, upsetting a lot of people, and then moving on to the next church and hopefully doing better. And um, it was during this time right here from uh, really 2007 to 2008 uh, where I was here in Australia and I was finishing up a stint of Bible work right here in Melbourne and I met somebody. 
first relationship that I ever had. And I was like, you know, I remember talking to this girl saying, hey, I like you. And then her saying, hey, I like you back. Thinking, what? Well, it's amazing. And then trying to figure out life, but realizing I actually don't know what I'm going to do with my life yet. I'm 24. I haven't finished my undergrad. I'm doing this missionary thing. I don't know how to support a family, but I care for this person. And long story short, short, that relationship, it, it didn't happen. And I was kind of like devastated, like, oh, I feel like such a failure. And I'll tell you what, God opened a door for me to go to university, and boom, I went so quickly. <laughs> I was like, I get my life together, get my formal education, and be ready for a family. And there's nothing like crisis that motivates you to, to grow and mature. <laughs> and so here in 2008 was my time at Andrews University. Um, I completed my uh, Bachelor of Arts there, and uh, it was during that time that I worked at a church called the Andrews Korean Church, and uh, there was a group of us university students who were Korean-American, and uh, there was about 35 of us. Uh, the youth pastor at the time was Jin Ha Kim, and I remember walking to that church, meeting this girl named Jin Ha, and uh, basically for the next three and a half years, we worked at that church together and uh, really learned how to reach out to people who had uh, been brought, born and raised in the Adventist church, but were really exploring their faith um, for themselves for the first time. And I remember uh, there was a two-year period where our youth group went from 35 people to like 135 students. And so no longer was the church just a Korean church. It was very multi-ethnic. There are people, there are youth in our church who are going and spending time with other youth and bringing them to church and giving them Bible studies and running small groups. And um, one time, you know, in, in an ethnic church, they run potluck every single Saturday. And uh, one of the deaconesses poked her head in the door and her eyes kind of bulged because, like, we had standing room only. She goes and yells out to the kitchen, we need more food! And it was kind of going through that experience of, like, ministering with Jinha and going, hey, like, there's something here where we're actually able to do something meaningful together. And I remember at the end of our time at Andrews, um, there's a pastor by the name of Dwight Nelson, and he was kind of sharing about what campus ministry was like at Andrews University. And then he highlighted the Andrews Korean Church, and he said, arguably, this church has the most successful student ministry at Andrews University. And that was kind of like a huge vote of confidence for the two of us. And it kind of like you know, when we started dating, initially we kind of felt like James and Ellen White, where it's like, this is a very work relationship. Like, we, we need each other so that we can do ministry better. <laughs> and so uh, it was one of those things where it was like, ministry first, and then we'll work out a relationship and get along and develop love. And <laughs> it was one of those, one of those interesting um, partnerships. But it just felt like God was saying, hey, you guys do this together because I'm doing something in your life. And I probably worded that terribly, so sorry, Jinha. <laughs> like, the, I, I, I feel such intimacy and connection to this woman. It's not just like, I need you so that we can do ministry. That sounded terrible. <laughs> well, we got, we got engaged and I was set to come back here to Australia uh, to work at uh, to to work at a, a certain church. Well, it so happened that that church wasn't supportive of female pastors. Um, my fiance had a master's of divinity and was going to be a female pastor, and so that church leadership calls me and says, "Hey, Roy, you are about to marry this person. We have an issue with this." 
Now, I had, I had a hunch they might have a problem with this. So a year beforehand, I flagged it with the leadership. Hey, just letting you know, I'm going to date this person. I know I'm supposed to come back to work for your church, but just she's studying to be a pastor. I just want to see if you're okay with this. And uh, communication, I come back. Yeah, don't worry. We trust you. It's good. Like they even flew to Andrews, met Jinhan. They gave they gave me their thumbs up approval. Like okay, now I didn't have to do this at all. What what pastor has to clear with their church? Can I marry this person? Right, I, I'm going above and beyond the call of duty, and so I'm just flagging it just to 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 manage conflict in the future that I foresee. Well, lo and behold, we get we get um, engaged, and something happened in Australia that triggered this female pastor war that happened back in the early 2000s. And there was, the, there was a lot of discussion that had happened about female pastors at that time. And so here I am engaged and the leadership of that church in Australia fly me out to Australia to have a 15-hour Bible study about women in ministry. And I had studied my brains out for three and a half years and like my, my major was in the, like it's studying the Bible, right? And so I go and I'm, I'm ready they were not ready. <laughs> and so what was supposed to happen is we have a Bible study. We go to leadership meet. Uh, they give a response. The elders give a response. Then we go to leadership meeting, and everybody decides then. What happens instead is I give my Bible study. They go straight to leadership meeting. They excuse me from the room so I can't share my side of the story. And then they basically said, Roy, we've decided that we're going to pull your internship from from this church. So... Um, thank you for your service and your relationship over the years, but um, we're, we would like you to move on. So that was, that was a very devastating time period for me because there was this eight-year-long re- relationship that I had with this church. I had Bible work with this church, like lots of, lots of um, people that I felt very close to during that time um, w- with that church. So there was kind of this crisis. I'm getting married to this person. I don't have a job. I don't know <laughs> where we're going. And it was during that time where we just prayed, God, if there's a place, can you open up a church where both of us can pastor together? And so we sent our, uh, our, our CVs far and wide all across America, and we couldn't find a single conference that would hire both of us. I get a phone call from the Victoria Conference president at the time, and he says, Roy, we want to plant a church in the city of Melbourne. Will you and your wife come here and start a church with us? And um, we prayed about it. We couldn't find a job anywhere else. And thought, okay, we're going back to Melbourne. Came back to Melbourne and started this church with five people. And you guys heard the rest of the story last week from Jinha's sermon. So here's this crisis that's af- upon me at that time. I feel lonely. I'm in the very same city from the church that I got dismissed from. I have no friends. We have, a new, we, we have a new marriage. Three months into our time here in Melbourne, Jinha gets pregnant. And it's kind of like, we're like, okay, now we're going to be parents. And they say there are a few things that you should stagger out. Like marriage, kids, moving, and starting a new job. You should stagger those things out. For anybody who's thinking about doing those things, stagger those decisions out. We did it all in one go, and it was a tough transition. Like, it was so hard. And so for the first however many years, Jinha and I were just very sad people. <laughs> we were really sad. And it took us years to build relationships with people here in Melbourne. It took us and, – and what we learned is being in America – Americans are very like, 
we'll get to know you quickly right away. Um, and especially if you come from an ethnic church, there's just a lot of, like, you just spend a lot of time together. But Australians are different. It takes time to build relationships. Aussies want to know, are you genuine? Do you prioritize this relationship above all else? And it took us five years to finally feel like this is home. Like, these are our people. We feel like like th- this is, we, we belong here. It took five years. Uh, yeah, it took five years. <laughs> and, and at about five years, things started getting good. Like we then applied for citizenship. We got citizenship a little bit after that. And we finally started integrating into the community. So here we go through that phase of crisis and we enter into the next phase of ministry. We start, we're starting to feel safe. We're starting to feel a part of the community. But what ended up happening is all of that stuff of losing the job, losing community, going through all these changes that have taken place in my life, I'm starting to process them in my 30s. And in my early 30s, I hit a wall. It it was kind of like this fear of, oh, no, what happens if I don't have enough money to take care of my kids? Oh, no, what's going to happen with the rest of my life? And I started having all these, like, concerns about like retirement at the age of like 33 or 34 and you know it's kind of interesting i've been talking to other pastors and like there's something magical about between 32 and 34 where people start like young pastors start exploring like investing and like and like how do how do how do i generate enough income so that i can i can take care of uh take care of retirement and just something about that age i went through that and and it led to this sense of like deep frustration because <laughs> it was like i i feel like whatever life is here is not enough and th- i just kind of felt this burnout and i really evaluating my own sense of calling and wondering if i should be a pastor and every six months turning to jinhan asking the question hey like should i quit <laughs> and just like uh, just really struggling with with that sense of god's leading in my life and just being uh, not satisfied well, it was also during that time where um, I just made a decision, God, I'm going to turn to you. You lead me. You guide me. You tell me when it's time to stop. And, you know, it was during that time where I just kind of wrestled with all the baggage and all the crisis and all the change that had happened in the past and came to this conclusion, God, you've been there. Here I am with my wife. We're pastoring a wonderful church. We've got two healthy kids. Like, I... I we experienced the most stability that we've ever experienced in our lives, and yet I found myself being unhappy. I couldn't, I couldn't explain it. And maybe it's the curse of being, um, like, maybe it's a curse of, of arriving at some sense of uh, stability in life and not knowing what to do next. Well, it was through that time when I turned to God and just felt God's presence saying, just keep pushing on, keep doing what you're doing, and see where it leads you. Well, it was during this time where I got exposed to different church plants. We were pastoring this church plant. The conference asked us to uh, help another church plant for about six months. Uh, The church was called The Orchard. Uh, We helped out North Point, which was also another church plant. And as I started reflecting upon where God had led me in the past, there was kind of this pattern of me being involved with churches that were focused on outreach, community service, church planting. And this role came up in the conference um, and they asked, they asked, um, they asked me, "Would you like to be the church plant coordinator for the conference?" And that really felt like this sense of, um, 
a realization, hey, like, I've had this journey, and God has led me to this point, and there was this kind of like this, um, a sense of assurance that God was there, and that there's something more. You know, when I reflect upon these different crises that have happened in my life, I think about our church, because we're in a place of crisis, because come September, we don't have a place to worship. It's like, what's going to happen next? And there are often times in these moments of crisis where we ask God, God, are you here? What are you doing? What's your plan? And, you know, after going through this journey, after working through the timeline, I kind of looked at Jinha and I just said, you know, um, if this would have happened years ago, I would have been panicking and stressed and not not knowing what to do next. But I just kind of feel this sense of, like, it's going to be okay. If we get funding for for another church and for a building for for a child care center and a leadership training center great if we don't that's okay like it's gonna be okay and and there's just something about knowing that god is there with you because he's got a plan for your life and what i want to share with you today is that god has a plan for your life bobby clinton calls this um divine sovereignty or, or adopting a sovereignty mindset excuse me adopting a sovereignty mindset and just saying god you're in charge i'm giving my life to you what do you want me to do so today i want to ask you that same question Uh, i want to challenge you to ask that same question god what do you want me to do you know this question will lead you to something that goes far beyond what you're used to it'll take you beyond your time at work it'll take you beyond your family life beyond your holidays See, God wants to shape and guide you. You know, I think of a number of people in our church that have asked that question, God, what do you want me to do? Um, some of you know Michael Brady. Um, he's, uh, he's, been a, he's been a part of our church since the very, very beginning. And uh, for those of you who are familiar with his role in the church, him and Sam run a small group, um, and he's our church treasure. But something that you may not know is that... Um, as someone who is a lawyer, not only does he utilize his uh, skill set in the corporate place, but he also helps the church out. Uh, Michael regularly gives um, counsel to the Victoria Conference on different legal matters. Uh, he sits on um, the Victoria Conference Constitution Committee. Um, he helps set up policy for the church. Uh, he provides training and support to the AUC Trust Services. So in Australia, there's a whole body of people that manage uh, wills um, for, for anyone who is an employee of the church. And so Michael gives um, free training to the people who, who, who um, operate that. Uh, Galen, uh, many of you guys know Galen, um, and you know that he has a passion in property. Um, if you travel through Point Cook or Werribee um, or, or even Frankston or Peckenham, there are, these, there are five churches, that, there are more than five churches, but five churches that stick out in my mind where Galen has written proposals, helped these churches to, uh, to, to, to plan for their infrastructure, and he's helped raise over $6 million for these five churches. And so here's one person who said, God, what can I do for you? And like, sure, he does his own thing. He has his own uh, secular um, workplace activity. But he's saying, God, what can I do for you? You know, there's Pauline who has a passion in social media. She helps out our church uh, making posts and making sure that we have a presence on Instagram and on Facebook. Um, James uh, and the whole AV team who have spent countless hours um, setting up AV 
Here's someone who is very proficient in computer skills. I know nothing about computers. And years ago, I went to James and said, hey, James, um, what can we do about getting our church online? And he said, let me see what I can do. Two weeks later, boom. (laughs) And now every week, hundreds of people get to tune into this church and hear the gospel. So there are people that just ask the question. There are many of you who do do a lot. And so f- forgive me. I, I was like, okay, do I just name everybody in the church? So just, But I just want to challenge you to ask that question. God, what can I do for you? Because God has a plan for you. And there's something incredible that you can do that impacts eternity. So as you consider these things, and as you enter into this journey, may you experience his presence leading and guiding you. May God bless you. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, as I think about this church, this community of 95 people that are a part of us, um, Father, there are, are each individual here you've called to do something special. You've given uh, an experience, a journey, uh, gifts, skill sets, um, life circumstances that have shaped who they are. And Father, I just want to lift up this church to you in prayer and ask that your presence, your spirit would, that your spirit would be felt in the lives of uh, the people here in this community of faith. And I just want to pray that you would raise up leaders to do something that would impact eternity. And Father, while our lives, our jobs, our families um, are important, um, there's also something else that you're calling us to. And I just want to pray that you would reveal that as we journey uh, with you. Uh, We pray these things in your name. Amen.